Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson. Back on schedule Friday. So you get three shows this week. You just had a day delay. I apologize. But uh, we're here on Friday, and hopefully we'll be back on schedule next week without any issue. Now, give you a little bit of an update. Next weekend, I'm going to be out of town. And uh, probably we'll have to do the Friday show on Thursday. You don't mind getting a little day early, huh? But, uh, yeah, so you get three shows next week. I don't know if it produces on Friday or produces on Thursday. But, nevertheless, we'll have you three shows next week. And we'll start previewing uh, teams in the SEC. This will be our last show without a football preview of sorts. And uh, we're going to talk today about this ridiculous all SEC preseason team was voted on by the media, as well as how it all worked out. I mean, listen, it's all on brand, right? And there's some so ridiculous about some of this stuff. My belief is that we should have a um, a bit more transparency. I think we should know how people voted because people are making this a farce. It's ridiculous. And they say, well, Steve, it's just a preseason list. And it is. It is, but there's some good points about that, too. I mean, you know, the perception of your program matters to recruits. You know, it matters to us because we want to be respected, but at the end of the day, respect doesn't pay anything. Wins is what rings the cash register, right? Uh, I, you know my feelings about this team. I don't care if anybody else believes with me. I, I don't. It doesn't make any difference to me. I don't need the rest of the world – to think like I do in order to have confidence in my own opinions and belief. I believe this is going to be a very good football season and a very good football team. I just think that the voting record of the SEC media is terrible. In addition to that, it just kind of flies in the face of the fact that we're all supposed to be researchers. You know, Every year it's like, well, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're an experienced team, so they got to be good. Well, now Mississippi State's experience, ah, we just pick them last. Like, well, you know, there's a lot of changeover with the coordinator position. You know, Mississippi State technically has two different coordinators, Matt Brock and, and Kevin Barbet, which is true, even though there's going to be continuity on defense. But uh, that doesn't appear to be a problem for Arkansas in the minds of the SEC media, who I think could have a very difficult year. I still think there's a chance that all seven SEC teams in the West make a bowl game. But I think Arkansas is in a situation where it's going to be a lot like last year in many respects, that they're going to have to run the football and control the clock and keep their defense off the field. They've got to get better production. That said, none of us should be surprised. I mean, the thing that disappoints me the most, I expected to get picked six or seven. That doesn't surprise me. But Jed Johnson doesn't get picked for all SEC. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, so many of these people are stat counters anyway. And, and Jed Johnson's second in the SEC in tackles. And he doesn't even make the third team? Give me a break. How is that possible? What are we basing it on? If, if in-game and in-season and in-league production doesn't get the guy some respect, what does? And so, I've heard some people say, well, you know, he's not really a pro prospect. We're not ranking pro prospects. We're ranking college football players. That's what we're doing. And you can't sit here and tell me that Jed Johnson's not one of the top linebackers in the Southeastern Conference because he's got the stats and tape to prove it. So that's what really irritates me is because that's a young man that, uh, you know, could have that nice little commemoration of being recognized as being one of the top players in the league at his position. You know, how everybody picks this is really inconsequential. But to not to not vote him to all SEC is ridiculous. It's like a few years ago when uh, they – 
didn't give Bernardrick McKinney the nod, but voted for uh, the, the second Kim Dietschy brother. You know, Denzel, I think was his name. But, uh, yeah, I, I would venture to say that Bernardrick had the last laugh because he had a, a few years in the National Football League and did some cool things and made a lot of money. But all that said, I think that that's an honor that should have been bestowed on Jet Johnson. I think it's uh, despicable. And he said, but Steve, it's just a list. And you're always, you know, you always down talk these lists. I do. But when it's something this significant, as far as the all SEC thing goes, I think that there is some, there should be some measure of accountability. I'm not saying you got to drag everybody up there to the podium and make them defend their votes, but I think you should make them public. And then let the mob met it out. Let the mob say, you know what, hey, you're an idiot. You know, that, that's what Twitter's for anyway, right? Is to tell everybody how right and wrong they are. But I don't think people should be able to, uh, to hide behind anonymity. Just my personal belief. You may feel differently, and that's okay. Let's thank our friends at Bulldog Burger Company. I love Bulldog Burger Company. You talk about consistency. You talk about transparency. You talk about truth in pricing and advertising. That's what you get with Bulldog Burger Company. Got to get in there again. You know, the, the kid is home now after spending a month at Young Life Camp. He was ready to get back around his work friends and back to Bulldog. Matter of fact, he's working a double shift today. So if you swing in Bulldog Burger Company in Starkville, say hello to Ian. Uh, but I tell you, it's been a great experience for him. He loves his work family. He does. They hang out together outside of work. It's been a great experience for him. And I was already a raving fan of Bulldog Burger Company long before uh, Ian worked there. But I'll tell you, it's uh, – I find myself going a little more often. You know, you, he's going to be going off to school here in a couple of weeks anyway, and so we're going off, going across town. But, uh, you know, my point being is that, um, yeah, I find a reason to go in there. And uh, I'm always satisfied when I leave. It doesn't matter if I have the BLT salad, if I get the sweet heat chicken sliders, if I get maybe just the spring rolls, just kind of an in-between meal, tied me over type deal, or I get that great restaurant-quality hamburger. I always leave satisfied. Not just with the meal itself, but with the experience, the service, the price that I pay, the time that it takes me to get seated. There's just so many things that happen there that, that are of quality. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive here in Star Vegas. Gloucester Street there in Tupelo. There'll be some live music there from time to time. And then Lake Harbor Drive in the Ridge and Flowood area. Be sure and check them out today. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. All right, let's unpack this bad boy here. We'll start with the Eastern Division. Vanderbilt gets eight votes to win the SEC East. Eight. And I think that was probably some collusion on the behalf of some to try to get Vanderbilt not pick seventh. I can't prove it. That's just what I believe. Eight votes to win the East. The second, excuse me, the third most votes of the first-place variety in the SEC East went to Vanderbilt. If that is not evidence that this process is flawed and has become a joke and that people don't take it seriously, I don't know what is. Nobody in the right mind, maybe Clark Lee, you know, maybe he can say, hey, we'll, we'll figure it out, belief in ourselves. But I think even Clark Lee would be honest with you and say, hey, you know what, we're not going to challenge for the SEC West Championship this year. Not with the two-time defending national champs within our division. We're not. But eight people voted them to win the East. Eight? You got to be kidding me. And because of those uh, eight votes, 
you know, it just kind of skews some things around a little bit, I guess. They're still seventh in the projections. Despite the fact they had eight, they were going to be seventh anyway. The lowest point total amassed in voting in the Southeastern Conference, only Mississippi State uh, in the 400s, which we'll get to that later. But this, again, further illustrates that we have got to do something different going forward. You said, but Steve, does it really matter that much? Well, I think if you want people to promote this and you want people to base content on this particular projection, there needs to be some integrity in the process. I mean, let's be honest about this. You know, the definition of media has changed a great deal over the years. It has. There's no doubt about that. But when you have eight people, eight grown people of voting age credentialed to go vote in this thing and they pick Vanderbilt, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I think we can all agree. All due respect to Barton Simmons and Clark Lee and everybody associated with Vanderbilt football, but nobody in their right mind expects Vanderbilt to win the SEC East this year. Nobody. I don't care how they voted. The whole thing is a sham. Number six in the East is Missouri. That shouldn't be a big surprise either. I mean, you're six and seven. The East is probably fairly easy to pick. You get those middle teams, kind of shakes up a little bit. Florida is fifth. I actually have them fourth, as you guys heard on yesterday's show. But Florida, like Missouri, did not get a single vote to win the East. Now, everybody else the rest of the way did. So five teams get a vote to win the East. Think about how absurd that is. You have the two-time defending national champion and five teams within their own division are picked to win the division. Give me a break. And, of course, Kentucky. (laughs) Man, it happens every year. Kentucky gets a vote to win the SEC East. They nearly finished third in the projections, but they're fourth. And considerably ahead of Florida, who was fifth. But uh, Kentucky with that strong first-place vote. I'm sure there's somebody out there that will tell their grandkids, I went in there and I voted for Kentucky because I love the Wildcats. Guys, I love Mississippi State. But I would never, ever, 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 ever go into a process like this and insult the Southeastern Conference by voting Mississippi State to win the West if I didn't truly believe they would. As I mentioned, South Carolina finishes third. They have three first-place votes. And uh, I suspect many of those people probably in the South Carolina media. Uh, But 50 points ahead of Kentucky. And that's kind of how I see it, too. I think South Carolina um, will probably finish third in the East. I don't have my ballot up, but that's kind of how I remember it. And I think a lot of it's going to boil down to Spencer Rattler. What kind of year can he have? Now, considerably ahead of South Carolina, over 400 points ahead is Tennessee, who got 14 first-place votes. And I I guess if you're not going to pick Georgia, you'd pick Tennessee. They're clearly the number two team in the East. You can say, well, you know, Steve, Georgia doesn't have, uh, you know, Stetson anymore. Well, you know, Tennessee doesn't have Hooker anymore. So it's going to boil – you think it's really going to boil down to just that? I don't think so. I think Georgia, by and large, has a more talented roster. Tennessee did lose uh, some key players, but they return, you know, some veterans as well. Tennessee will be a good team. I remember last year, 
Even some of you, when I picked Tennessee to do as well as they did preseason, people are like, yeah, Steve, I don't see it. Josh Heupel's the real deal, man. And now that they're out from under the uh, the cloud of the NCAA investigation, they've now been sanctioned. That's big. You know, it's like, hey, this is behind us. It wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. We feel like we handled things appropriately. And now it's time to go play football. And you guys, you know what? You get a ball game this year. It was close. And there was all this talk that you might not get a ball game, but we're going to get a ball game. All we got to do is go win our, our six games and get ball eligible. There's no restrictions on us for the postseason. So Tennessee's in a good spot. I just don't see him being Georgia. And, again, you say, you know, Georgia recruited, you know, four- and five-star quarterbacks for a decade or more and then had a former junior college guy come in there and, and uh, win back-to-back national championships. An SEC legendary career for Stetson Bennett. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But 265 first-place votes to win the East, which is the biggest vote-getting and vote total in the league this year, and rightfully so. All right, we'll look at the West. Mississippi State actually got one vote to win the West. It wasn't me and Brian Haiti that came out and said it wasn't him. I'm sure it's probably somebody that voted Vanderbilt number one to win the East. Probably that, you know, probably the same person. I suspect if we saw the ballots, we would find out that the same person that voted Mississippi State first in the West probably voted Vanderbilt as well. Probably. Uh, but Mississippi State, second lowest point total in the picks, which is ridiculous. And you want to talk about ridiculous. How about Auburn with four first-place votes? Guys, we have just hit a level of absurdity that just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It is clear people are not taking this process seriously. And maybe I take it too seriously. I mean, I've said for months it's all going to be a joke, and it is. But it's an even bigger joke than I anticipated. Guys, Auburn is not winning the West. They may next year. They may surprise some people this year. They, they may do better than sixth. But they're not going to win the West. And they get four votes to do it. The third highest vote total among first place votes in the SEC West. You really think Auburn's going to beat Georgia? You think Auburn's going to beat Alabama, beat LSU? I mean, Forget the fact the contemporaries. Forget the fact they got to play Ole Miss, Arkansas, Mississippi State, A&M. Forget that. You really think they're going to beat Alabama, LSU, and Georgia? I mean, honestly, with a brand new coach, and I'm not, I'm not just sitting here you know, running down Auburn. This is just more about the absurdity of this voting process. It's an absolute joke. Is Auburn going to be a better team than they were last year? I, I don't know. I know down the stretch, Auburn played exceptionally well in her Cadillac. They did. They played hard for that guy. And I think a lot of it was just kind of the relief of um, of getting Brian Harson out of there, you know. And they played well for Cadillac. And uh, good on John Cohen for finding a way to keep him around. I think that was kind of a no-brainer type position. But a lot, some coaches could come in and be threatened by that. But uh, clearly wasn't the case at Auburn. But uh, Auburn, I picked them sixth. They are picked sixth. Uh, by the league media, but four first-place votes. I mean, come on. Arkansas, with that porous defense from a year ago, and yes, I know it's last year. Things change. They hit the portal hard, maybe getting some guys back. We'll see. 
three first-place votes to win the West. Guys, do you honestly believe that Arkansas is going to beat OSU and Alabama? Because that's what it's going to take. You honestly believe that? I got Arkansas going six and six, seven and five. And, and it's got nothing to do with KJ or Rocket. I think they're. T- I think Arkansas needs to keep games like twenty-four points or less. We could lead competition, right? I mean, they'll they'll, they'll gash non-conference teams because people aren't going to be able to match up with them up front. And KJ is such a load, and then you got Rocket out there. I mean, they're they're going to wear some people down in a battle of attrition. But what do they do when they get a couple scores behind? You know, I went back and watched that Arkansas-Mississippi State game just yesterday. Guys, there was a huge difference in the talent gap in those two teams. Huge. I don't care what the rankings say. I don't care what the season looks like. I mean, which even that favors Mississippi State. Arkansas goes 6-6, six and six, that goes 8-4, and four, and then State blows Arkansas out. But watching that game, it was not close. And – to be quite honest with you, State probably should have won that game by more than they did. You know, a couple fluke plays kind of kept Arkansas in it for a little while. It's the reality of it. But three votes, probably all in the Arkansas media. Bob Holt probably did it. Love Bob to death. But, you know, the reality of it is, again, it just kind of speaks to how this process means nothing to the SEC media. Ole Miss. The only team in the West that didn't get a vote for first place. I think that's the first time, I don't know, what, 10 years that didn't happen? Because usually, you know, Chuck Roundsville or somebody will vote for Ole Miss, and, you know, it's a badge of honor for them. The only team in the West that didn't get a vote for first place. And Ole Miss picked fourth. You know, I, I've got them fifth. But that's about right. I mean, so I think Ole Miss is probably getting maybe – a fair assessment by the media for whatever that's worth. And then there's Texas A&M third. So I've got the, the same top three. You know, my my variance is with the final four teams in the league. I've got State four, Ole Miss five, Arkansas six, Auburn seventh. Or excuse me, Arkansas seventh, or Auburn six. And I think that the Auburn will find a way to beat Arkansas. But, uh, but I think, again, I th- the Ole Miss hype machine isn't what it has been. And, and one of the things that I wonder about, too, is uh, – yeah, and I saw Lane Kiffin's comments about NIL, and I, and I agree with him. And um, I think most of you do. And the, trans, the transfer portal has been uh, a good thing and a bad thing for Ole Miss, and, he's, and he kind of mentioned that, is when you go out and get guys that have one year to play, it's difficult to kind of breed that esprit de corps. Right? I mean, the bonds themselves. I mean, you go out and you hire a bunch of mercenaries, they're not going to be committed to the team. They're committed to themselves, right? I mean, and by and large, Right. There are some guys that are just, you know, happy to have the opportunity. But there are other guys, when adversity hits, they kind of pack up on you, right? I think we saw that with Ole Miss last year. But it's it's pretty clear that there are some people out there that are somewhat doubters of Ole Miss. And that's probably fair. And, again, with that running game, with Jackson Thard and Quinzon Jenkins, I mean, you know, they're another team, too, that can do some things that are explosive. I think they're going to score at a better rate than Arkansas and Auburn. A&M, one vote, and they, that one vote was probably the difference if that vote had gone to Ole Miss rather than uh, A&M. Maybe Ole Miss is picked third in the West, but they're picked fourth. A&M with the one vote, 16 points ahead of Ole Miss. Uh, A&M third, again, I've got them third too, but I think a lot of it's going to be, I think the schedule is somewhat advantageous to them. 
And if Bobby Petrino is allowed to work his magic, A&M could be tough. They got talent. It's not like they're devoid of talent. And, you know, Petrino knows what it takes to kind of bring a quarterback along, right? So, Petrino, I think, will have that offense somewhat functional. And you know, defensively, they were a pretty good team last year. So, we'll see how things go. Uh, LSU picked second with 117 first-place votes in the West. Of course, that's your defending SEC West champion. I think the Tigers are going to be really good. I think the difference in the West is the fact the game's in Tuscaloosa. That didn't stop Joe Burrow from going over and winning, so I don't count LSU out of the game. But it's the same thing with Alabama and Nick Saban, it seems, every other year. People are always predicting the demise of the Tide. First place, 165 votes. I think Nick Saban, when his back's against a wall, if that's possible in Tuscaloosa, generally comes out with a good team. Generally, yeah. So Alabama picked to win the West. So if Alabama and Georgia playing in the SEC title game, looking at the uh, votes for SEC champion, South Carolina gets one. Mississippi State gets one. Texas A&M gets one. Auburn gets two. Arkansas gets two. Vanderbilt with five. Again, it's a joke, man. Vanderbilt gets the same number of votes to win the SEC as Tennessee does. I don't think either will win it, but the fact that Vanderbilt is even mentioned in the same breath as Tennessee in this discussion, I think is a joke. LSU with 31 votes. I'm sure that's all 31 uh, fan bloggers from LSU. Alabama with 62. And then Georgia, the runaway predicted winner with 181 points to win the SEC championship. That's how I picked it, too. I got Georgia over Alabama and the SEC championship. All right, let's get to the uh, SEC. Let's face it, friends. We live in uncertain times. Security, probably more important now than ever before. That's why it's important to keep you, your family, your property safe by working with my friends at Eufy. That's E-U-F-Y dot com. Let me tell you a little bit about this new video smart lock they have. It's super cool because basically you get a three-in-one security system here. You can have everything on just one device instead of having it outside of your house look rather tacky because you got all kinds of stuff out there. It's not just about your security, but convenience. No more concerns about losing keys. You can assign passwords to your family members, and you can see who's kind of coming and going. You got that immigrated camera, too. Uh, it's easy to install. You can set it up with just a Phillips screwdriver. You know, you don't have to go to a class on how to use power tools. No drilling required. You have keyless entry. You don't have to worry about fumbling with the keys when you're getting back with a, an armful of groceries, right? How convenient is that? That in and of itself is a great benefit. You got fingerprint recognition. It's unlocking. Got that AI self-learning chip. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You don't have to worry about the battery. It's got a rechargeable battery that can last around four months. And you get a notification before it runs out so you don't have to compromise your family security. You got passcode unlocking, remote control, 2K clear sight camera. You can see who's at your door. You see these videos online all the time. Don't you think it's time for you to set something up so you can have the peace of mind of knowing that you don't have people constantly going in and out of your property? There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee, you can have your recordings locally and never have to pay for storage. How cool is that? It's convenient, it's safe, it's a must-have for your home today. 
If you already have like a video doorbell, you know sometimes people want to come and steal your, your doorbell. You don't have to worry about with, that with this. All right, so let's be sure to visit Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y official.com forward slash video lock. And it's time for you to gain control of your door. Again, that's Eufy. E-U-F-Y. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her personal foundation, says they're seeing more issues than ever with dogs' joints, odors, and their health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can all look to improve our dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that many dog foods are made in a way they can actually create toxins that could possibly be wrecking our dog's health. And that's true for many of the premium brands as well. Fortunately, she's found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step -step how any of us can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. I've got five dogs. I do. I love them. I spend most of my time with them. In fact, Mojo, my mama blue healer, has helped me write six and a half books now. I want her to be as healthy and happy as possible. So if you feel like you do about your dogs the same way I do, let me encourage you to go to badlandsfood.com forward slash boneyard and watch Catherine's video right now. And again, that's badlandsfood.com forward slash boneyard. Be sure and check it out and make sure your pet is happier and healthier than ever. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply preseason all-SEC list now. All right, I, I have a few quarrels with this. Not as many as most, but I have some. Uh, First-team quarterback is Jaden Daniels at LSU. I think that's probably the right pick. I mean, he's the difference in him winning the West and not last year. I think we can all agree. And Jaden Daniels, I think, was better than advertised last year. I mean, there were some times last year early on, like especially against us, I mean, you know, he, he couldn't throw the football with any continuity. That got better as the season went along, as he got more comfortable in the offense. So, yeah, no qualms there. Uh, your top two running backs, Quinshawn Judkins from Ole Miss and the Rocket Sanders from Arkansas. I don't know how anybody could disagree with that either. Malik Neighbors from LSU, former Mississippi State commitment Malik Neighbors. We lose him on signing day. Lad McConkey from Georgia. Tight end Brock Bowers. I love his game. I think he's going to have a huge year. Offensive line, J.C. Latham from Alabama. Amarius Mims, Georgia. Tate Ratledge, Georgia. Will Campbell, LSU. And your center is Cedric Van Pran from Georgia. What a great name for a center. Kind of like Jeff Van Note for all you old school football fans. All right, your second team offense, quarterback K.J. Jefferson. Um, I would say... I think you could make a case here for Will Rogers, but I'm okay with KJ getting it, right? I mean, 
KJ, obviously, I, I think you could make the statement, KJ may have been the most valuable player in the Southeastern Conference last year as far as what he meant to his team. They clearly were not the same team without him under center. And he's a star. I love KJ. I do. Running backs, Jace McClellan from Alabama, Kendall Milton from Georgia, wide receivers, Antoine Wells from South Carolina, and then a tie, Brew McCoy from Tennessee and Ja'Cory Brooks from Alabama. Tight end, Mason Taylor from LSU. No qualm there. Offensive line, Tyler Booker, Alabama, Brady Latham, Arkansas, Javon Foster, Missouri, Xavier Trust from Georgia, and center, Seth McLaughlin from Alabama. I don't know that you could really argue against those. Again, you could probably argue a little bit for Will Rogers to be the second-team guy just based on previous performance. But, again, I, don't have a, I, don't, I can't complain about K.J. getting it. Your third-team offense, there was a tie. Joe Milton III, a guy that lost the job, or excuse me, couldn't win the job last year, uh, did show some athleticism. He and Will Rogers end up tied for third team. So Will does get an all-SEC mention, and it's well-deserved. And you look at the body of work compared to Joe Milton, you know, to me, it's a disservice to Will Rogers. He has to share it. But I'm happy that he got a mention. Running back Jarquez Hunter from Auburn. I think that's interesting. I think they'll know how to utilize him, but I don't know if you could do that based on last year's production alone. But, again, not really a qualm there. Uh, Trevor ATN from Florida, your other running back. Uh, Anaya Smith from A&M, I'd be glad when he graduates. Is he going to play receiver? Is he going to play running back? They're going to move him around. They will. Uh, Jermaine Burton from Alabama. Tight end Trey Knox from South Carolina. Offensive line, Emory Jones, LSU. Eli Cox, Kentucky. Javante Spragans from Tennessee. Layden Robinson from A&M, and then your center is Cooper Mays. So no Bulldogs make all SEC on offense other than Will Rogers. I think in the postseason it's going to be a little bit different. I think Woody Marks makes it. Defensively, your first team, Makai Wingo from LSU, Makai Williams from Georgia, Mason Smith, LSU, and Nazir Stackhouse from Georgia, that's your first team defensive line. Probably couldn't argue against that. Dallas Turner is a linebacker. Harold Perkins, uh, Jamon Dumas Johnson from Georgia. So, okay. I think Harold Perkins is the best defensive player in this league. Kool-Aid McInnistry, DB, uh, Malachi Starks from Georgia, Kamari Laster, Georgia, Javon Bullard from Georgia. And, again, a lot of Georgia names mentioned on this defense because they're going to be elite again no matter who lines up under center. Second team defense, Columbia High School product and former Bulldog recruit Jaheim Otis, second team. That's big. McKinley Jackson, another Mississippian that elected to leave the state at A&M. Justin, uh, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it, Abojabi from Alabama, Deion Walker from Kentucky, you get to the linebackers here. Smell Mondin from Georgia. Nathaniel Watson from Mississippi State, a second team mention. Teron Hopper from Missouri, a guy that was very productive for them last year. Malachi Moore from Alabama. Dwight McLaughlin from Arkansas, former LSU guy. Damani Richardson from A&M. Chris Abrams-Drain from Missouri, a guy that's been around forever. One of the, I think State was among his first offers. He committed to LSU and then eventually flipped to Missouri, putting together a good career up there. So, Buki, the only guy in the first two teams. Third team, Princely, Umana Malin from Florida, 
Tonka Hemingway from South Carolina, Tim Smith from Alabama, Darius Robinson from Missouri. So no Jaden Crumbity. And again, I think this is like this is what makes no sense to me. If you don't, if you, are there really twelve defensive linemen in this league better than Jaden Crumbity? I'm going to tell you no. But I'm sure they said, well, you look at the numbers last year. Well, he was hurt last year. The numbers keep him out, but yet the numbers don't help Jed Johnson. Because your third team linebackers are Chris Broswell from Alabama, Jalon Walker from Georgia, J.J. Weaver, Kentucky, DB's Major Burns from LSU, D.J. James, former Bulldog commitment at Auburn, Namaya Pritchett from Auburn, and Jason Marshall from Florida. So no Jed Johnson. I'd like somebody to explain that to me. How is he not at least a third-team linebacker with his level of production in the most physical league of all college football. Makes no sense to me. You're not going to be able to talk me out of it. I'll die on that hill. I do think the opinions of the Auburn secondary are really good. We'll see how that goes. But it's going to be interesting to see so many Auburn names make the all-SEC list when they're predicted to finish, what, sixth? All right, your specialist, Kai Kroger from South Carolina, is your punter. Will Reichert from Alabama, your place kicker. Neilan Hibbett from Alabama, your deep snapper. Brian Batty from Auburn is uh, your kickoff specialist. Kool-Aid McInnistry, your first-team return specialist. And then Anaya Smith is the all-purpose player from A&M. Second team, Nick Constantino from A&M. Uh, he is a weapon for A&M. The fact that he's not first team is a little bit of a surprise to me. Uh, Harrison Mevis from Missouri is a place kicker. Slade Roy from LSU, the long snapper. Barry and Brown, the kickoff specialist for Kentucky. Then Anaya Smith, again, is your second team return specialist. Then your all-purpose player is Tula Griffin. You get to the third team, Oscar Chapman from Auburn is your punter. Alex McPherson, the place kicker from Auburn. Uh, William Moat from Georgia, the long snapper. Mitch Jeter from South Carolina, the kickoff specialist. Then Tulu, again, a return specialist. So a two-time uh, honoree is Tulu Griffin. And then DeCarrie and Joyner from South Carolina is your all-purpose player. And so uh, so we do get three Bulldogs on the all-SEC list in Will Rogers, Bookie Watson, and Tulu Griffin. Last year, Tulu was snubbed, as was Buki. You know, I remember Emmanuel Forbes ended up being a second-team preseason All-SEC selection. Uh, but, again, this is the thing where I really take quarrel with. It's, it's not so much the picks of how everybody finishes. It's I think we put this list together. And uh, as a guy that used to be a voter on the Fox Sports All-American team, I can tell you we were challenged on our votes because we wanted that team to have some credibility. Nobody ever told me how to vote, but I had to kind of explain my picks. Like, if I was kind of out of concert with everybody else. And that's one thing that I always did. Like, Brandon Huffman was out west, and I would say, hey, Brandon, I need to make sure I've got a west coast flavor to this thing, too. Who are the obvious offensive linemen that maybe perhaps I'm missing, you know? So I took a lot of pride in doing that. I did research. I would agonize over it for days, and then I would vote my All-American ballot. It wasn't something like this, where I go pick Vanderbilt to win the Southeastern Conference. And again, a list is a list, and maybe I make too much of this, but I think the whole thing is a joke and it smacks of disrespect. Now, the flip side of that is, this is probably the best thing that happened to Zach Arnett. Probably. Because Zach Arnett, as you guys know, has been an underdog his whole life. He will utilize these snubs as a way to motivate his team. It's like, hey, they don't, they don't believe in you. And if we had been picked high, 
top half of the West, which I think we are good enough to be in the top half of the West. We finished third last year, and we basically returned the same team minus a few changes in the secondary. But by and large, it's the same team. And so you start working through this, and you begin to ask yourself, okay, you know, what data point did you use to disrespect Mississippi State other than your own inherent bias? Think, oh, it's a new coach. Leach is gone. Well, you spent three years telling us that Leach and the air raid weren't going to work. So now we make the coaching change. You're like, oh, well, you know, that's still not going to fix. It's not going to work, Bulldogs. You know, there's so much of that that, that, that we have to work through and overcome as a program. And, and listen, people say, well, it boils down to marketing. No, it doesn't. There are some people that think so poorly of Mississippi State and Starkville and never set foot on our campus. There are a lot of people that go to SEC media days that don't cover road games. And the only time they're going to watch Mississippi State play is when we're the only game on television or we play the team they're covering. And so there's only so much media relations and marketing can do. The bottom line is you got to go out there and win. But this is pretty appropriate. This is apropos. When you, when you get down to the brass tacks of the whole thing, this is what Mississippi State fans have learned to expect from the SEC media. And there are some teams out there that do a really good job of marketing themselves. And then when things don't go as well, they pay for it. But the reality of it is, is this list in the end means nothing. we got to go play the games. I believe in this team. Are there going to be some hiccups early on offense? Yeah, getting LSU when we do is probably not necessarily advantageous. I mean, this LSU defense is going to be legit. And you know what they have with Jaden Daniels. They're going to scheme up some things, try to get Malik neighbors and one-on-one coverage. And I don't know that we've got somebody that can man up with him. We don't have Emmanuel Forbes. We don't have Martin Emerson. It's going to be up to DeCambrion Richardson. But I suspect they'll try to get him paired up with a safety more often than not. And Brian Kelly is a guy that's been around a long time. They're going to do a good job. But the reality of it is we got what we expected. I just think the snub of Jed Johnson is, is, is a glaring omission and an indictment on the SEC media. It is. But at the end of the day, I'm sure Zach Arnett is probably already in the group text telling everybody, let's go prove them wrong. Let's go prove them wrong. And that's the thing. When you got a guy like Zach Arnett, you know what fuels the furnace is doubt. When other people doubt him, doubt his team. I spent a lot of time watching football yesterday. Kind of, a, kind of an in-house day off in many respects after I got done with the show. I watched how we played against Illinois, watched how we played against Arkansas, against A&M, against Auburn. Guys, there were times last year we were absolutely electric. And there's some other games that we weren't. You know, Kentucky kind of stands out. Alabama stands out, right? I mean, and it's Alabama, right, in Tuscaloosa. But I suspect you're going to see a much, much, much more physical Bulldog offense. And I think you're going to see some guys out there that are going to feel like they've got a chip on their shoulder. They have something to prove. And so at the end of the day, I think this is just fuel for the journey. I don't think it's going to mean anything when it's all said and done. I think that that's probably something that will be stuck to the cork board in the locker room all year long. And we'll keep the receipts, SEC Media. We will. We'll keep the receipts. We'll honor you at year's end. Maybe we'll do a little video. Who knows? And we'll just play all the people that, you know, projected state to be a bad team. And, and the problem that I have with it, of course, I'm a lot closer to it than most. Like, I can't sit here and tell you which personnel groups of Missouri are going to be, you know, good. I think the wide receiver should be. And you've got Cook, it's a veteran quarterback. Offensively, I'll be pretty good. 
And defensively, they showed some real signs last year and really gave Georgia some trouble, if you remember. And Georgia, obviously, a very talented team. But I can't intelligently sit here and tell you, you know, what personnel groups are going to be strengths and weaknesses for that team because I don't cover that team. I don't know that. And so I, I say that to say this. This is a Bulldog team that is capable of doing some big things this year. Do I think we're going to a New Year's Six game? I don't. Could we get to the Citrus Bowl? Maybe. We've never been. I think we're back in Florida this year. I think this is a team that's going to wreck somebody's season. I think there's going to be somebody out there that's going to overlook Mississippi State or they catch us in a sandwich situation, and Zach Arnett and those guys are going to get that signature win. That was the thing for years and years when Dan Mullen was here is we never had the big signature win, right? Even though we won some games that, you know, people well, you know, yeah, you, you beat that Michigan team up, but they ended up firing everybody. You know, you beat that Florida team, but, you know, they had some issues. Wasn't a great Florida team that year. There's always a caveat whenever we get the big win. And then we got, you know, the wind at our backs a little bit. We got a guy named Prescott to come in here and take over at quarterback, and we did some pretty amazing things and, and racked up a bunch of signature wins. But I don't think Arnett's going to have to wait four years, five years into his tenure to pick up a very uh, impressive win over somebody that will negatively impact their season. I think that's going to happen this year. Next year's a different story. You know, we're going to have to do some uh, some very aggressive roster management heading into next year. But I think you feel really good about what we have this year. I think Kevin Barbe is a guy that's probably sitting back. Uh, if you've ever played Rook, I think he's holding the Rook and the Red One. And I think some people are uh, overbidding to get, to get the kitty, if you understand that language. I think Barbe has the weapons he needs uh, to make some pretty things, some, some good things happen, shall we say. All right, time for today's top 10 list. It's always brought to you by CloseWithBlair.com. That's C-L-O-S-E with Blair, B-L-A-I-R.com. And again, I, I go back to you. You want to throw your money away on rent for your college student. Whether they're going to Mississippi State or Southern Miss or Ole Miss or Bellhaven or wherever, if they're going to live off campus, why not put some money in and get in a condominium or buying a home and then co-signing with your kid and allow them to build some adult credit. Perhaps they take over the payments after graduation, or perhaps you sell the property and recoup your investment, or at least part of it. Or you could just stay on that hamster wheel of renting where you never really get anything accomplished other than making somebody else wealthy. Reach out to Blair to get more details about that, but visit him on his website at closewithblair.com. That's C-L-O-S-E with Blair, B-L-A-I-R.com. Or... Give him a call or text today. This number goes right to him. Not a receptionist, not a call center. Right to Blair Chandler. It's 601-500-2344. Again, that's 601-500-2344. And uh, we've closed Boneyard loans in back-to-back months. How about that? Let him know you heard about him on the Boneyard. Be sure and tell him. We appreciate that. Blair's been with me a long time. One of my dear friends. Love that guy to death. And I know what a great job he'll do for you. Again, that's closed Blair. Dot com 601-500-2344. All right, today's top 10 list. Uh, as you guys know, I have uh, f- put the finishing touches on a brand new book, When the Bottom Falls. You can pre-order today at whenthebottomfalls.com. If you're a fan of mine and my work, I encourage you to buy the book. 
If you're a person that's been impacted by addiction or alcoholism, I encourage you to buy the book. If you're a person working a program of recovery, I think this book is for you. If there's somebody you know that's been negatively impacted by addiction, I encourage you to buy a copy for them. And maybe that person itself, maybe they're in the throes of addiction, maybe they read something that maybe sparks uh, you know, some comeback. But if not, I think this is one of those things, too, that maybe for their parents or their wife or their, their husband or or somebody that's uh, connected to them closely that needs to kind of understand addiction a little bit better, I've given you my point of view. So go again, that's from, uh, go to whenthebottomfalls.com. You can pre-order today. Uh, pre-sales have gone exceptionally well. And I want to thank you guys from that. And, uh, you know, again, look at about a mid to late September release. So you got some time to do it, and all pre-orders will be signed. But the uh, reality of it is, is that uh, the sooner you order, the you know, sooner we can get your book out. So if you order today, it's still going to be September. All right, top 10 today, also kind of uh, affiliated with alcoholism. And some people are like, Steve, I guess you're tired of hearing about this. Well, it's the reality of life, man. What do you want me to say? So you may remember the great band Tears for Fears, right? We're doing a top 10 on those guys today. And uh, uh, Roland Isabel was as kind of the driving force behind it. He lost his wife, Caroline, to alcoholism. And uh, she really battled with alcoholism and depression. Those things kind of go hand in hand. It becomes one of those things where, like in the beginning, the alcohol and the drugs give you a, uh, a bit of a break from reality, kind of an escape. And then in time, the remedy becomes your poison because it becomes this vicious and never-ending cycle because you go drink to escape, and then you don't take care of things around you, and your problems begin to multiply. Then there's all this shame and guilt for not taking care of things, so you drink to escape that. And so you can understand how the downward spiral begins to escalate. And that was the case for Caroline Orzabel. She uh, battled depression and alcoholism for years and ultimately died uh, to alcohol, alcoholism-related illness. You know, they called it natural causes, but in the end, alcoholism is what took it from us. And... Um, as a result, Roland you know, was devastated. He said that he lost his soulmate. He said it was very difficult to, uh, to just get up and function in life. He said, I did not marry a woman who was timid or conservative. She is my fire. And uh, I, I believe that I have found that too. I hope that you have as well. Because when you meet that person that makes your life better and you enjoy making their life better, life for everybody involved is that much better. Uh, so I wanted to kind of give the backstory there because I think it's important to understand that uh, there's a lot to this and um, the 2022 album that was released from Tears for Fears uh, was much of that was written during the final stages of Caroline's life and so it kind of comes across including the song Please Be Happy which is uh, is heartbreaking it really is if you listen to that song I think it's it's one of those things that will kind of get next to you but uh, Tears for Fears began in uh, 83 so it's 40 years ago man it's crazy to think about that and uh, the band released their debut album the hurting that went to number one on the charts in the united kingdom their big break in america came with songs from the big chair as you guys are well aware many of you have that album and then they're sowing the seeds of love and then there were two albums that uh kurt smith was not a part of they reunited and uh, released the album Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. And that was their first release since the reunion until 2022. 
So our number 10 song is from the new release, the title track from The Tipping Point. Again, this album was written during the final stages of Caroline's life. And uh, I think there's also some, uh, there's this haunting, airy feel to the song that really makes it seem very theatric. And so I think you're going to enjoy that one. Uh, number nine, a lot of people don't know this, but initially, Tears for Fears was kind of in the same vein as Depeche Mode. It was just two guys out there, and they, they, they sequenced a lot of things, and they put this stuff together. So there's a lot of synth pop in the earlier catalog, and um, that's part of the deal. And, and you kind of get that in our next couple tracks here. Uh, number nine is Pale Shelter. It's really a Depeche Mode OMD, and for those of you that have forgotten, that's Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. It's a lot like that, kind of got a new order feel to it in some spots. Because that was part of, really part of that next Great British Invasion was the New Wave Acts. And so they were kind of part of that, kind of on the back end of it. But um, you know them more from kind of their rock and, and top 40 type things. But at their core, they were really kind of a new wave band. Uh, number eight, another one. I, I love the, the keys on this one. It's Mother's Talk. I think you'll dig this one, and it's basically a dance song. At the end of the day, it's what it is. You'd say, well, Steve, I know the hits, but I didn't know they did a dance song. They did a bunch of them, especially in the early stages. Now, the newer album has kind of come full circle. All right, number seven, this is a hidden gem in the Tears for Fears catalog, and we're going to kind of get to the hits next because they did have several hits. But uh, it's a great track called Women in Chains, or Woman in Chains, excuse me, and the great Olita Adams sings the duet of the female part. And uh, you say, well, Steve, I've heard that name before. Yeah, Olita Adams had a massive hit in the early 90s with uh, Get Here. You know, I don't care how you get here, just get here if you can. You, know, you can reach me by airplane or whatever. An amazing love song. And also, Phil Collins sits in on the drums on this great track. So Woman in Chains, kind of an all-star track. Really cool kind of ballady type track it's a little different than everything else on our list today but it's again a song that i think is very impactful and i think it's a song that you'll enjoy number six mad world really like this one a lot it uh, was a minor hit in the states was a bigger hits across the pond there but mad world one that you know really kind of showed they had some staying power um number five sowing the seeds of love the video was wild. The video is like something like through the rabbit hole from Alice in Wonderland. It's like you, you think you're on an acid trip or something. But Sowing the Seeds of Love, amazing song. I think the vocal is incredible. And so many people know it. But I think if you sit down and don't just listen to the chorus, maybe listen to the verses and the actual full lyrical content, I think it's a song that you're going to fully appreciate. Number four, huge hit. Huge, huge. But it's number four for us. It's head over heels. You know, something happens and I'm head over heels. I think the vocal on this is immaculate. I think Kurt Smith's work on this, the guitar work, phenomenal. It's one of those songs, too. It's relatable. We've all been there. We've all felt this. You know, like all of a sudden, it's like you meet somebody, and next thing you know, it's like it's just making you miserable because you can't be with them. And you're head over heels. Everything matters, right? That's a big part of all this. Number three, the comeback off the album Elemental. This was without Kurt Smith because after they had, you know, 
Sowing the Seeds of Love, there were two albums that Kurt didn't appear on. They've had seven studio albums in, in their history. Uh, this, this comes off Elemental without Kurt. It's the great song, Break It Down Again. It's kind of a comeback track for Tears of Fears. And, uh, of course, uh, Rowan kept the name, even though Kurt had left the band. Rather than perform as a solo artist, he continued to perform as Tears for Fears, even though his songwriting mate had left the, pro the project for a couple albums. But great track, and I, I love the, uh, you know, the little character type things within songs, you know, the little, the little things that are not just, you know, the kind of the fill-in parts vocally. I love that on this one. Number two, a song that everybody knows, it seems like it was in every movie from the 80s. It's Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It's great. Like the end of uh, Real Genius, the closing credits play to Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And of course, Real Genius, the great movie with uh, Val Kilmer before he was Iceman. It's great. I love that album. And I, I mean, I love that movie. If you've never watched Real Genius with Val Kilmer, it is amazing. I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. There's Kent, Mitch. And there's one, there's one, there's one, one part in there. And it was an ad-lib part that uh, Val Kilmer put in himself. And uh, like the, the professor is like, hey, I need to see more of you in the lab. And Val says, okay, I'll gain weight. You know, uh, it's, it's a great line. But it's a, it's a very, very 80s movie. But it's very, very interesting. And, uh, you know, the, the ending is something that is timeless in my estimation. But again, everybody wants to rule the world. Just part of that great soundtrack. But... Uh, you know, one of those songs, too, that was very, very 80s, not just because of the fact of its production value, but of its subject matter. You know, for us that were, you know, children of the Cold War, I mean, that's what we grew up with. It wasn't like it is today. I mean, like back in those days, you know, you didn't fight Civil War on Twitter. It's a much different deal. Maybe it's safer today, but uh, people feel more plugged in. But, you know, there was all this, there was more national pride back in those days. There just was. Because we all thought we were headed to our own collective nuclear war fate. It's like, hey, you know, I don't like this guy, but you know what? I may need to trade some canned goods with him someday when the Russians attack. We live with that. It's, and I wrote about some of that in the book, too. I mean, it's like we grew up in the shadow of a pending nuclear attack at all times. It was always something. You know, then when the Chernobyl thing happened, if you're unfamiliar with that, you can look it up. You know, the Chernobyl thing happened. All these people got radiation sickness. It's like, this is what you've got to look forward to, America. At some point, it's going to happen. There were movies about it. I mean, everybody, the Russians were always the bad guys in every movie. You've probably seen that, and maybe that comes back around. But at the end of the day, it was a much different deal back then. You know, that was like the beginning of terrorism. Number one, though, and I, I don't think, in my estimation, there could be any song that better typifies the Tears for Fears experience, and that's a great song, Shout. And a lot of people have covered it, and nobody has done it as well as the original. It's just one of those songs, and of course, you know, I was a young teen, as the stuff begins to kind of roll out. And uh, it's one of these things about, you know, finding your voice, empowering yourself. You know, these are the things I could do without, so come on. I'm talking to you. Come on. I, I love the song. It's still one of the, probably one of the, my favorite songs of all time. And so shout your number one track today. Everybody's heard it. And it's like one of those things, too, like you hear that little percussion in the beginning. Like you, already, you know where you are. And all of a sudden it builds and they start riding into the chorus and then break into the verses. It's, uh, it's one of those songs that is iconic to people of my generation. 
And it was so much of it too. I think maybe it was because we all the, we all felt so, had all this pent up aggression. You know, and it's like, well, I just want to you know say how and what I feel. And like I, I see these things about Generation X all the time, and it's like, hey, you know, like the the little reel, you guys doing okay? Yeah, we're doing great. Yeah. Like the lady says on the Instagram, yeah, this is a cakewalk, you know, compared to what we grew up with. I mean, give me a break. You know, we had to go wait in line for concert tickets. We had to go camp out to go to movies. It was just ridiculous. I mean, you guys have it today. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stressors from social media and things like that. But my goodness, man, the convenience that is available to people today. I mean, we had to wait for our, our favorite disc jockey. We had to call him and beg him to play a song so we could record it on a cassette player perched next to a speaker and you hope he didn't talk too much over the intro, right? Because then you have to hear his voice all the time. It's crazy. And so I don't want to have one of these get off of my lawn type speeches, but uh, the reality of it is, is that there was a lot of us back then that kind of felt like we had some things to say and nobody was listening. Uh, There's a lot more of that today, but it's a whole lot easier uh, to identify with your tribe today due to social media and uh, it's so much easier for people to uh, get their voice heard, which isn't always a good thing, and it's certainly not good in the music industry. It's watered everything down. But this song, Shout, was a song of defiance, and it was a song of empowerment. I absolutely love it. Um, shoot, played at my funeral. You know, it's just one of those things that I've always believed that uh, everybody has a right to say what they feel, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, right or wrong. You know, at least be able to speak your piece. I've always been a proponent of that. Yeah, I don't have to agree with you. And you know, there's a lot of that today where all, you know, there's a lot of people like you know, the, the loudest people get heard, you know, because a lot, a lot of people are, are scared to challenge them. You know, and so it's like there's this little solid, you know, majority of people. It's like they're just kind of working in the shadows because people don't want to stand up and, and be labeled because of the fact that they stood up what they believed in. I, I think everybody should have the ability to, to be able to speak up and say what they feel without fear of reprisal. It's my, my own personal belief. It's a naive belief because uh, nowadays, if you say something that doesn't go along with the mob, they try to get you fired from your job. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are based on. You could be completely correct. And as we've seen, as things have popped up here as of late in the last few years, there's a lot of things that people were telling us were true, and then our leadership was telling us that it wasn't, and it turned out to be true. You know, I go back to that whole, one of my favorite songs ever, is uh, on that Queensryche Operation Mindcrime album. And uh, Jeff, during Revolution Calling, Jeff Tate sings, uh, I used to trust the media to tell us the truth, but now I see the payoffs everywhere I look. Who do you trust when everyone's a crook? All right, final segment of the show brought to you as always by Campus Bookmark, a Starkvillian institution, the best place to go for Mississippi State merchandise. it's, It's not even up for debate. The best selection of Mississippi State merchandise right here in Starkville, right here next to campus, at Campus Bookmark. If you can't make it to town, or perhaps game day is a difficult shopping day for you, maybe you got to set up a tailgate, you got people to entertain, visit them on the World Wide Web at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays. That's BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Robertson. That gets you free shipping on all orders over 75 bucks. Any order less than 75 bucks, absolutely incomplete. Mom, I'm telling you now, everybody in the family is looking forward to you because it's going to boil down to you to get them some new maroon and white threads. And, and Dad, I can tell you, on behalf of all the dads everywhere, 
when we get the unexpected gift, it just means a little more. It's one thing, you know, you get the coffee cup and the, you know, the socks on Father's Day. You know, you get that. I mean, you get an umbrella. You get needful things. But it's nice to get something maybe unexpected. Maybe it's not my birthday. Maybe it's not Valentine's Day. Maybe it's just because you love me. How great is that? Speaking of, I just ordered some new shoes for somebody that I love, right? And so do the same thing for the people you love. And Dad, don't let it all fall to Mom. You order her something or get her a gift card. If, you, if you're not a good gift buyer like me, then maybe perhaps get her a gift card. Uh, get her a store credit at Campus Bookmart. Let her pick out her own stuff. You know, whether it be a T-shirt or a dress or some things for the home. They've got everything that you need to outfit your family in maroon and white gear. CampusBookmart.net. All right, let's take some time now and talk a little bit about uh, the baseball transfer portal. As you guys know, former Alabama pitcher Luke Holman uh, did a flurry of visits. He visited Tennessee, visited at Mississippi State, visited LSU, and then kind of had a pop in at Auburn uh, to close out his visits. I'm told now that he will spend a few days talking with family, talking with his advisors, and push towards a decision. Now, prior to the visits, I had somebody tell me Tennessee might actually be Mississippi State's greatest competition. That appears to have changed over the course of these visits. It now appears to be LSU, which is a surprise to nobody. LSU did a better job of anybody in the country last year basically kind of reforming their roster through the NCAA transfer portal. Kind of did the same thing in women's basketball. And they got a couple of NAFL championships to brag about now. And so whether you agree with NIL or not, whether you agree with the transfer portal or not, it's not going away. And LSU kind of showed everybody, hey, this is how you do it. And they have more resources than many other programs, more resources, excuse me, than many programs. And so they're always going to be a factor because we're out there chasing the best players in college baseball in the portal, as are they. Tommy White is back this year. Much of that roster is not going to return. But, uh, you know, Thatcher Hurts, a guy that was also, you know, absolutely electric for them in Omaha. Riley Cooper, the same thing. Of course, Paul Skeens kind of goes without saying. But by and large, you know, when you look at the guys that really, you know, cap, uh, kind of push them forward, you know, to a national title, it came out of the portal. And so they're right back in the portal again. And they go out and get jumped from UCLA, who's expected to be a Saturday starter, which kind of brings us back to Holman. Thatcher Heard, I've had multiple major league scouts tell me he will likely be the Friday night guy to LSU next year and could be a first-round draft pick. Certainly a day-two draft pick if he doesn't push his way into the first. He had some back injuries out at UCLA. That was a big concern. And listen, he was up and down much of the year. But in the postseason, he was outstanding. They don't win an AFL championship without Thatcher Hurt, period. And I think even even the most dogged LSU fan will tell you the same. Thatcher Hurt was absolutely brilliant in Omaha. He was. So with Hurd returning and you add jump to the mix, and of course you got Gidry and you got some other guys, LSU always recruits the high school ranks well. If Luke Holman wants to be the Friday night guy, it's probably not going to be at LSU. If he wants to go to LSU, he is probably competing for a Saturday or Sunday job. Now, is that important to him? You know, because Ty Floyd was a guy that was basically the number two pitcher throughout the year. Uh, Ty Floyd got drafted fairly high as well. And so that's the thing you kind of consider. If Luke Holman wants to push his way into the first round, or 
potentially a second round. He's probably already right there anyway on the cusp of that, certainly a day two pick. Then maybe he needs to throw on Friday nights. And, of course, you know, if you, when you go to LSU this year, the entire year this year is going to be about last season. Let's just be honest about that. It's still going to be kind of celebrating LSU, kind of returning to being LSU again. And that was the thing, like last year, people kept saying, what's happening in Baton Rouge? That's why LSU's ready to be LSU again. You know, they sat back and watched State and Ole Miss both win NAFL championships. I've seen Arkansas kind of walk right to the threshold of winning one. Um, and so LSU has not been the dominant program in the SEC West for much of the last decade. And they were tired of it. So they have rallied the troops, put together a nice war chest, and said, hey, here we are. On top of that, you throw in Auburn, a team that's just kind of been kind of an average team in the West. And, you know, Butch Thompson's got a couple of Omaha trips under his belt in the time that he's been there. So LSU's contemporaries had closed the gap. So they're looking to kind of get back and expand the gap. And so, listen, Holman may go to LSU. But I was told after the LSU visit that it was State and LSU a dead heat. After the Mississippi State visit, Mississippi State had a considerable lead. You expect teams to get a bump out of visits. It doesn't look like Tennessee really did. Now, one of the things that's important to understand about Tennessee, Tony Vitello, no matter what you may think about him, his players love him. Major League scouts love him. A lot of people tell me he's, he's a guy that doesn't, even though he plays and coaches with an edge, he doesn't really have as big an ego as you might expect. That he is the kind of guy, when he was at Arkansas, would reach out to other people and say, hey, what, what are you seeing? What, what do you, what, you know, what's happening with us? When you do your scouting of us as an evaluator, what do you think of our players? That's an important aspect of things. And so, Tony, again, very personable. And they're really throwing some money behind Tennessee baseball up there. The, the issue is with Holman is most of that is not going to be realized this year. We went through that, of course, and we uh, demolished Duty Noble Field and rebuilt the whole thing. You know, it, it took a while to get that done before it was fully realized. And so if Luke Holman really wants to play in a big-time ballpark and a big-time atmosphere where the player amenities are already in place, it's going to be LSU or Mississippi State. Auburn, of course, has recently put some money behind their program. But it's going to be difficult for Holman to be able to fully realize that. And so if, if facilities and player amenities really matter to him, then it's going to be State and LSU. And that was the thing about Tennessee that people told me. As much as you like Tony and as much as you like Frank, it's going to be probably a couple years before they finish, you know, kind of getting things where they need it to be. So all year long, all through fall baseball, you're going to be basically in the middle of a construction site. That's not going to be a great experience for anybody. In the future, it's going to be great, but it's not going to be great right now. That's a factor in things, Right. Uh, this is the guy that wants to come in here and expand upon his college accomplishments and push himself into better positioning to be a professional baseball player. So I don't know for certain when a decision is going to come. I'm told likely next week. That's not to say that he won't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm done. I want to go to Mississippi State or I want to go to LSU. You know, the thing that's interesting to me, and I said this this morning on Bo Bound Show, is I've got people telling me there's probably half a dozen kids that have been told, hey, we think you're the next Paul Skeens. Well, let me just go ahead and let you guys off the hook. Nobody is going to be the next Paul Skeens. Nobody. That's a generational talent. 
In addition to that, Wes Johnson, the guy that allowed Paul Skeens to make a jump from elite to the best pitcher in college baseball, is now at the University of Georgia. So it's a different situation. I'm a huge Nate Yeski fan. I think he is among the best pitching coaches in the country. And he didn't have a lot to work with at A&M. And that's, that's what I don't think people fully appreciate. Despite their resources and their budget, A&M has not really recruited uh, big-time arms. You know, Asa Lacey is a guy a couple years ago that was big-time for them. But by and large, A&M has not had, you know, that really bona fide star on the mound in recent years. Um, you had a couple guys here and there, but you, you kind of understand my point. And so, Nate, over the course of the last couple of years, and of course in 2022 they make it to Omaha, has really done a lot with less. He'll have better ingredients to work with in Baton Rouge. And there were people before Nate took that job that said he'll never go back and work for Jay Johnson again. Never. A lot of people in college baseball told me that. said he won't go there. And a lot of it was because of scholarship stuff. You know, when they were at Arizona – they wanted to spend most of their scholarship allocation on hitters. And, you know, Nate was arguably the best pitching coach in the country. It's like, well, you figured out. You know, and, and that's, again, kind of a byproduct. What you see is you don't see a ton of big-time arms come out of A&M. But yet you look up, and there they are in the postseason again. You know, and so now Nate's at LSU. And, again, he'll have more say. And, and the fact that NIL is a much bigger deal there, not that A&M's – uh, not doing a good job with NIL. It's just they're allocating more of those resources to football. You know, now uh, with the TOPS program at NIL, Nate ought to be a lot more aggressive on a recruiting trail. I think he'll win some recruiting battles that maybe he wouldn't have won at A&M and at Arizona. And this may be one of them. I mean, let's just kind of call it for what it is. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I think Luke Holman is coming, but I will tell you that Luke was leaning to Mississippi State heading into the LSU visit, and now it's even. Now, the flip side of that is I'd much rather be even after a visit than trailing. So if what we're told is correct, Mississippi State still should be in a good position. Now, some people are like, well, I think LSU – listen, you know, that, that's kind of like picking Georgia to win the SEC, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the chalk. But at the end of the day, Luke Holman is a small-town kid. Starville kind of fits kind of where he's from. You know, Baton Rouge, a bigger city. Got some big big city problems down there, too. I lived there 16 years. I'm not just speaking out of uh, you know, a rumor or innuendo. I was there. Been to that campus many times, uh, for sure. But, you know, listen, LSU is LSU. And they're the defending NAFL champions. And so you're going to have a lot of pressure to go there. So you know what? Hey, this is the same staff that did this, even though it's not technically the same. But this is a roster that uh, is kind of in the rebound. I mean, obviously, they've, they've lost a lot from last year's team. But they play in a ballpark that's also um, very offensive. And that's one of the things that I think about. If you're not Paul Skeens, you know, if you're not a guy that has that type of first-round ability, and you're going to play in an offensive ballpark, and you're trying to boost your Major League Baseball stock, that may not be the park I'd pick because it is very offensive. You're going to give up runs at Alex Box. Now, your team's going to score a bunch, and you're going to play most of your games there. But as far as, like, seeing your pitching numbers improve, that's not a guarantee. It's because of the way the park plays. You know, Duty Noble's a lot more offensive than it used to be as well. But it is much more of a pitcher's park than Alex Box is. So you got to figure out what's important to him. I know that Mississippi State is a family and I know that uh, Luke Holman is a guy that uh, I've been told is, uh, you know, is very involved with like FCA and stuff like that. And so 
Uh, that's an issue. So I don't think that he's a guy that's ever going to pick a school because of a party, right? I think he's going to make a mature decision. It's a much different deal, too. As I spoke with Justin Parker here a couple weeks ago, recruiting pitchers out of the portal is much different because, you know, you're basically entering into a business decision with them. You know, high school guys is like, this is what you can develop into being. Uh, when guys go in the portal, they're looking for playing time or looking to kind of round out their game a little bit. So it's a different approach. Now, Braden Montgomery, a uh, lot of discussion. I know Mississippi State has spoken with him, as have several other teams. I've had people mention TCU as a team that has come after him, as has Georgia here as of late. I know that Georgia all of a sudden has kind of decided to allocate some resources to college baseball to kind of get Wes Johnson off on a good start. You know, Slade Alford uh, has left Mississippi State and gone there to shortstop from Baylor's headed there. So they're looking at an influx of talent. So I don't know if Georgia is a real factor, but I know that Georgia uh, is a team of interest. Uh, of course, the usual suspects, LSU, Tennessee, all those teams are going to be involved too. And again, for the same reasons that we discussed with Luke Holman. I mean, again, LSU is LSU. And again, if you're an offensive player looking to kind of pad your stats a little bit, uh, there are a lot worse places to go play baseball than Alex Box Stadium. But also when you look at this lineup, I would venture to say Braden Montgomery comes here, the Mississippi State lineup is going to be better offensive within the LSU lineup. And there's some LSU people listening to my show, and they'll be like, oh, Steve, you're crazy. You got, we got Tommy White. Yes, and what else? Not much. Braden Jobert is gone. Jordan Thompson is gone. Maybe that's a good thing, you know. You know, I don't, I don't know how you feel about that, you know. And then you go get, you know, Broswell from South Carolina. That That's a bit of a – a gamble. You know, we'll see how things go with him. Um, but, you know, he was a guy that was kind of up and down a lot at South Carolina. You know, can, can Jay Johnson get him turned around and kind of get him rolling? We'll see. But I think if you're Braden Montgomery, too, there is the comfortability of the roster at Mississippi State. Now, he and Hunter Hines were teammates. They didn't just, like, hang out together off the field like some people have suggested. I've talked to a lot of people and say, hey, yeah, yeah, they'd love to play together again, but that's not going to be the deciding factor. And, of course, Hunter up there uh, going to be in the Cape Cod Home Run Derby and also on the All-Star team up there. Uh, then there's the whole issue of, uh, you know, Ross Highfield. You know, Ross is a guy that knows Braden really well. And I understand that Ross was actually a little bit closer to Braden than Hunter was. So we'll see if that matters. You know, there are a lot of people like, oh, well, there's this on social media and there's that on social media. I I'm going to tell you in the end, I don't think it's going to make any difference what happens on social media is not going to make a big difference. I know people are like, well, this is this, you know, well, all of a sudden this person followed this person. That's not to say that it's not relevant. Ultimately, choose that team. I can't count how many times of football recruits over the years, but oh, all of a sudden they just started following this player. You know, maybe he's a fan of that player. Maybe he's not just going there. And there's always that aspect of it. And so, uh, but at the end of the day, Braden Montgomery, again, there are a lot of things, a lot of advantages for Mississippi State. But I'm going to continue to say this. While I ultimately do think Braden's going to come to Mississippi State, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And I'm told that this week they'll kind of narrow the field and figure out who and if they want to take a lot of visits, and then they'll make a decision. But uh, I still think we're probably a week or so away from a decision. I know Braden would probably like to get it done, but I will commend him. He has gone through this. Uh, very businesslike. And I don't mean that with a negative connotation that some people may suggest. He didn't want to do anything until he finished up at Omaha. He goes to Team USA Baseball, enters the portal a couple days before the deadline, 
puts in a do not do not contact order and then his representation and his family kind of reached out to some people to say hey Braden's interested in talking to you guys they set up like some zoom calls and some some uh some visits and those are taking place this week and so it's kind of a methodical approach it won't be an emotional decision but I, I do think in the end, State is a team to beat. I told somebody the other day, I thought we were rounding second, heading to third. I think we're, I think we're about ready to head to third now. You know, I don't, I don't know if we're sliding in third or going in standing up. I still feel good about where State stands. But I also understand this process is, is far from over. You know, he's going to take some visits. And, you know, he may just wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm going to go to Mississippi State. But people forget, you know, State really wasn't in the game with him coming out of high school because – you know, he was looking to go out of school, and the value of that Stanford degree meant an awful lot to them. Little did they know that he was going to get out there and become one of the better players in the country. I'm sure that's the dream and the hope, but it's now a reality. And he's a guy that's going to probably be a millionaire this time next year, no matter where he plays. So that's kind of where things stand today. And some people say, but Steve, if we lose Holman, you know, the whole portal season is a wash. I disagree with that. There are also some other names out there. and uh, But, you know, right now we're kind of all in on Holman. And then once, you know, Holman, of course, gives us the vibe, whether he's coming or he's not, there's no point wasting these other kids' times if we know we're going to get him, right? But until we get him, you don't know for sure. So you got to keep some other guys warm in the back burner. you got to have an opportunity to talk to some of these guys. Uh, you know, you feel good about the pieces you got, but we're still a weekend guy away. We needed to get two weekend guys. We got one. Needed to get two. And I don't think you just go take another bat for the sake of taking another bat. Braden Montgomery, I think, is just too good to pass on. No matter what roster you have together, I mean, even if you had the 89 Bulldogs, you would still take Braden Montgomery just because he makes you that much better. And so that's where things stand. I don't expect a decision this weekend from either. That's not to completely rule it out. I'm just not expecting that. You know, based on what I've heard, uh, the Holman family wants to take – a few days. And again, that's not to say that he won't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, Dad, Mom, I, I know what I want to do. Said, well, what do you want to do, son? Well, I want to go to LSU or I want to go to Mississippi State. Okay, well, we support that. And I think Braden Montgomery is just maybe a few days behind Luke Holman in his decision-making process. But uh, again, uh, two great ball players and could be difference makers for Mississippi State. You know, I, I think that is significant in every aspect. Because, you know, listen, I think Justin Parker is going to do a great job here. I think there is some talent on this roster that has largely been untapped, and there is some proven talent that needs some skill refinement. I think they get that with Justin Parker. But you'd like to give him kind of a running head start to be able to get Luke Holman. I think that's probably as much as you want Braden Montgomery, I think the one team, the one gap that probably changes the complexion of your team is to get Holman. You know what you got with Carson coming in, you know, from Miami. You don't necessarily know for sure what you got with Nate Lamb, but you can't expect him to, you know, to come in here and be a weekend starter. Maybe he's a long reliever for you on the weekends. And we needed a left-hand matchup guy anyway. But the reality of it is, is that, uh, you know, if you look at the LSU model, you know, and, and listen, they've done a good job in the portal again this year. A good job. Not nearly what they did last year. But that's not an indictment on LSU. It's the fact that the, that the talent pool is not as deep this year as it was last year, especially at the top. You know, like last year they got Christian Little and, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, Carter Young, and everybody's like, hey, you know, look at this. And then Carter Young ends up signing a very lucrative uh, pro contract. And then Christian Little, uh, he gets drafted. I would encourage him to go. But there's some talk about him returning to LSU. I, I, think, that's, I think that's a good thing for us, to be quite honest with you. I, I think Christian Little is a guy that has never fully realized his potential on the college level, and I don't know that it's going to. I think he's a guy that probably needs to get into minors and figure it out. You know, but, uh, but all that said, you know, we're continuing to work. Your staff is continuing to, uh, to chase other players. And then we mentioned, you know, there's pitchers from Purdue and from Boston College that we're in contact with. Uh, pitcher from Louisville we're in contact with. And you got a relationship there, obviously, with Dan McDonald and, and Chris Simonis. And so you got to feel like Chris ought to be able to get the straight information from McDonald. And you got to feel like, too, if, if this is a situation where the young guy just wants a fresh start, then McDonald might push him to Lamontis and say, hey, give these guys a look, give these guys a listen. Uh, but the reality of it is, is, again, I still think we take two more arms. Hopefully one of them is Luke Holman. Uh, but if not, I still think you take two more. And it's not just because of the fact that uh, I don't have confidence in Justin Parker. I just think you got to give him a few more spices to work with. If you're going to let him cook the meal, you know, we don't just want spaghetti and meatballs, you know. you got to make him – give him – everything he needs to turn this thing around. And, and again, you know, the reviews from talking to people close to, close to the program and close to our roster have been very good about Justin Parker. It's early. You know, we hadn't had a chance to really get on the field yet. But as far as, like, getting to know him and getting to know his philosophy, uh, it's been very positive. And at the end of the day, what matters most is what happens from, you know, Valentine's Day weekend to Memorial Day. That's what matters. You know, we're not here trying to win a press conference. We're not here trying to win, you know, a national baseball award uh, for best portal class. We're trying to go in ball games. You know, it's not a matter of opinion. There's a reason we have a scoreboard out there, and that's where we want to excel at is on the scoreboard. But I do believe that Justin Parker will get better production out of your returning pitchers, and I think there are some guys like uh, that, that are going to be in, incoming into this program that will benefit from Justin Parker being here. I, I can tell you, John Whittle, that covers uh, South Carolina baseball for 247, absolutely raves about Parker, about he gets the most out of his kids. And really the, the big part of it is kind of teaching those kids to pitch with an edge, to pitch competitively, to pitch with a little bit of an attitude. And we saw that when we played South Carolina. Uh, those guys were not intimidated in the big moment. They were not scared to make the big pitch. And, you know, Chris Veach is a guy that was basically on a trash heap of college baseball. Ends up being one of the better closers in our conference. And that's all Justin Parker. Give the kids some credit, too. Uh, but my point being is that he is a guy that can take a guy that's pretty good and make him really good. And, and we've got some guys that have some talent. And, uh, you know, you hear a lot of things. You hear whatever you want to. You talk to enough people. Uh, but there's a lot of optimism about this pitching staff. And there are some guys, obviously, that, uh, you know, that you guys kind of got tired of. You know, that's just kind of the reality. Like, I'm just tired of seeing this kid walk out here. I, and I, I go back to when we discussed this here a week or so ago, but Jared Liebelt. You know, Jared Liebelt, in 2018, you were scared to see him come out of the pen. And then in 2019, that's the guy you wanted to see come out of the pen. You wanted him to come in and be able to turn a game over. And there were some big innings that uh, he had some very high leverage pitches. And a lot of that, again, is a new pitching coach comes in and Scott Foxhall turns a guy around, finds some things out, kind of mechanic. I know Foxhall's name is, is, is a bad one in many circles these days because of what's happened the last two years. But sometimes a new pitching coach 
can identify something mechanically or mentally with a kid to make him better. And you can never underscore the importance or understate the importance of having a full year of experience in the Southeastern Conference. You know how guys are going to attack. You know when you make a mistake, you're going to pay for it. And so guys will be better for the experience and then I think better with the new philosophy. You know, when we have been great in baseball, it's not just when we've necessarily had dominant pitchers. It's when we've had guys that were confident. We had guys that believed in what they did and trusted their stuff and pounded the zone. I mean, you go back and look, you know, you go back and think even about our team that, uh, you know, played for a NAFL championship in 2013. You didn't have a star-studded pitching staff as far as it relates to Major League Baseball prospects. But you had guys that were utilized by John Cohen and Butch Thompson to the betterment of their ability. You know, Ross Mitchell, of course, was absolutely outstanding. He went 13-0 and that year for us. You don't think a lot of that was schematic, too, though? I mean, Ross is outstanding, don't get me wrong. But he had 34 appearances on the year with a 1.53 ERA. You know, we'd start Trevor Fitz, and, uh, you know, they'd, they'd stack the lineup with left-handers, and Ross come out there and just eat him up, and Ross was phenomenal. And Ross only gave up two home runs that year. I mean, granted, it's the era of BB core, but just two dingers. And considered that he threw 94 innings. It's impressive. And it was just 72 hits per inning. Uh, Kendall Graveman, you know what you had with him, right? You know what Kendall Graveman's record was that year? Do you know? It was 8-5. and five. He's still in the big leagues. Still lighting people up. But he was 8-5 and five that year. Opponents hit 267 against him, which was the highest batting average allowed for any Bulldog regular pitcher. And, again, that's in the BB Core era. Then you had Luis Palarena, 6-4. and four. A guy that made 13 starts on the year for us and played a little bit of right field for us when we had to bring in somebody to just pitch to one hitter. You know, that was part of the deal, too. Then Chad Gerardo, a guy that I remember watching Chad just mop up against Florida on Super Bulldog weekend thinking this kid's never going to be anything here. And what does he do? He posted a 9-1 record in relief. 36 appearances on the year with a 1.36 ERA. And, again, this is another guy, too, that many of our fans were like, you know what, I'm done with this guy. And, of course, you had Jonathan Holder. Big-time guy there, right? I think we'd all agree. Uh, ben Bracewell had some big innings for us as well. Most of you even forgot that name. You get a little bit deeper, of course, there's uh, – you know, Trevor Fitz, who went 0-1 at six starts, and uh, Will Cox is the guy that played a little bit for us, 18 appearances, uh, four starts. Miles Gentry played for us and uh, had some injuries and, and couldn't finish up with us. Evan Mitchell was a guy that, uh, you know, worked some with us on the weekend. Nine and seven record on the year. Excuse me, that's not right. <clears throat> 0-1 record on the year. Nine appearances, seven starts. I read that incorrectly. And then, of course, was Jacob Lindgren. But you look, you know, by and large, we didn't have great starting pitching. We had good starting pitching. We had really good relievers. And you start getting into conference play, and, and you begin to kind of realize that this is just a different animal in the Southeastern Conference. You know, uh, do you know who led us in wins that year in SEC play? The easy guesses are going to be Ross Mitchell and Kendall Graveman, which is correct. Graveman went 4-4 four and four in the league. And Ross goes 4-0 in the league, and all of those are in relief. We didn't have a starting pitcher that year that had a winning record in league play. Let that sink in for a second. 
We had 30 conference games, so we have to have 30 starts. And we didn't have a single guy have a winning record. And we played for a NAFL championship. And so I, I share that I think it's important to understand it's not always about getting the dominant piece. It's about getting the right piece and then being able to manage that. And, again, the job that Butch Thompson and John Cohen did that year uh, was remarkable. And Butch is the kind of guy that he always tends to find that extra gear in the postseason. I don't know what it is, but he can always do a little something different to get the most out of his guys. And so I, I just share that because sometimes we romanticize that 13 team, as we should, but I don't think we fully appreciate the job our coaching staff did because we didn't have a dominant starting pitcher. And again, we look back at Kendall Graveman kind of with a revisionist history at times. We look back at Kendall and say, you know, hey, he was a big leaguer. He must have been dominant. He really wasn't. He was really good. He wasn't dominant. There were some days out there, though, when he had that sink and action working on that fastball and got you beating the ball on the ground and getting under barrels. And he was a ground ball machine. And he had a really good defense playing behind him. But he wasn't a guy that could go out there and win a game on his own. He wasn't a guy that was – even with the BB core bats, the guy's giving – he's pitching the contact, right? Because there are so few guys that can hit the home run, right? But we just went over. Batting average against for Kendall Graveman was the worst on the team. And so I share that because I think it's important to understand, yes, the game has changed uh, due to the equipment that we play with. The ball's different. The bats are different. But the reality of it is you still got to go out there and throw strikes. You got to go out there and get people out regardless of what that means. And there were so many times last year, and I noted this yesterday on jeanspage.com message boards, and we talk about Kem Schulke, a guy that's uh, currently leading the Cape Cod in strikeouts, if memory serves me correct. And Kem Schulke is a multi-slot guy. How many times last year did we try to guy out there that was just like the guy he replaced? How many times? Well, it's a right-hander. Well, this guy's a little bit fresher, but we're going to go the same arm slot and have the same pitch selection. That's not winning baseball, guys. It's not. And we got to give people a different look. And that's what Cam Shawkey and those guys do. That's why going out and getting some left-handers is important. You know, one of the things that I admired about John Cohen, especially with that 13 team with Ross Mitchell, is if we could just get fits to get us through the order one time, whether it be two innings, three innings, you know, didn't want to overextend them. And everybody's already obviously uh, chewed up, you know, that they, you know, they stack their order with left-handers, and then you bring Ross Mitchell in with that big sweeping breaking ball he had. He's going to chew up those left-handers. The next thing you know, oh, well, now we've got a pinch hit. We're bringing in Jonathan Holder with old Uncle Charlie 12 to 6 right in your grill. Sometimes it's not just about the players you have. It's how you manage them and let them play to their strengths. And that's what we did in 13. You go back and look at 16, you know, Obviously, you had some really good pitching in 16. You know, people forget Connor Pilkington was a freshman, uh, and, and Connor was a big leaguer. And he was our Sunday guy. Outstanding, right? Because you had Dakota Hudson, you had Austin Sexton, and Austin Sexton's a guy that, you know, I mean, how many people thought he was going to be the dude that he was? You know, the, the problem that we had is Dakota was so dominant on Friday and Austin was so good on Saturday, we just couldn't sweep series until the end of the year kind of figured some things out and you go back and look at the 2021 team you know Christian McLeod was unhittable in 2020 people forget about that and the, the abbreviated season of 2020 we're like well we never got in a conference play which is true guys Christian McLeod made four starts in 2020 he goes a perfect 4-0 with a 0.86 ERA batting average against 127 35 Ks against six walks 
Was there not reason for optimism to have him back on Friday in 2021? There absolutely was. And, you know, he had some issues. But, you know, one of the more dominant stretches we had, and clearly one of the better pitchers in the conference, Will Bednar in 2020, you know, he had the big game out there at, uh, at Long Beach. And uh, people got really excited about that. But, you know, Will, that's the only start he made that year. And he got a no decision in the game. But, you know, we felt like, you know what, maybe we found something here. 23K, six strikeouts, and 15 innings of work. And then Eric Sarantola, we thought, hey, we'd get him kind of going in the right direction. We know McLeod on Friday. We know Bednar on Saturday and Sarantola on Sunday. Well, then by the time you get to Omaha, you guys wanted Houston Harding. You know what Houston Harding did in 2020? He went 1-0 in two appearances with a 2.79 ERA. So, again, you think, hey, he's a spot starter for us. He's a midweek guy. We ought to be good. But, again, down the stretch, we started piecing this thing together and pushing the right buttons. We found some things. Do you know what Landon Sims did in 2020? You remember the very first pitch he threw in all the way to screen? He didn't get anybody out his first appearance. Landon Sims appeared in seven games in 2020 with a 3.46 ERA, a 1-0 record. Allowed five hits in 13 innings and struck out 23. So the pieces were here. They just hadn't been polished yet. And I think that's the thing that kind of gives you some optimism for this year. You got some pieces here. You know what you got in Evan Sierra. You think you know what you got in Brock Tapper. You know that kid's going to go out there and compete. Logan Forsyth's the guy that's got a little bark to his bike too. You know, so you feel like, okay, well, that's good. You know what you got in Bradley Lofton? You just got to get him healthy. You feel like you've got a special piece in Gerangelo. And so, again, I go back to the fact that you've got a pitching coach that is elite, that has some talent, that has shown some flashes, but needs to find some consistency. And so look for that as we kind of move forward. That's what this fall is going to be about, is finding the guys that we can trust and putting them in a position they can be successful. And I trust Justin Parker's going to be able to do that because he's got a body of work that suggests that he can. But, again, we'll update you when we know something on uh, Braden Montgomery and Luke Holman over on AgeniusPage.com baseball board. And, uh, of course, if any news breaks, we'll have a story if they commit to Mississippi State. But, again, not expecting it this weekend. I mean, I'm prepared either way. But – I think this is, you know, an important weekend as these guys kind of begin to to push toward their decisions. And, again, I think Holman's probably a week ahead of Montgomery in his thought process. But, uh, again, that's just, again, secondhand. You never know what's going to happen. Because, uh, again, it's kind of like with your own life. I mean, sometimes you wake up and say, you know what, I'm ready. Let's just get it done. All right, if you haven't done so, go to dogpilethebook.com. While you're there, you can get copies of When the Bottom Falls, Dogpile, Stark Villains, and Alpha Dogs. Stark Villains, and we do have some stock again. And uh, Bloomsville Leander will be out of print soon. You can find it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, BooksMillion.com. In addition to that, Stark Villains gear, always available at StarkVillains.com. Every time I wear a Stark Villains shirt around town, people say, where did you get the shirt? StarkVillains.com. I should probably put on the shirts, right? (laughs) Go to StarkVillains.com, get your T-shirt and your hoodies, and you can get them in a variety of colors. So, Mom, if you're listening to the show, and you got kids that go to Starkville School District, whether they be Starkville High School students or Starkville Academy, you can get Starkville shirts in their school colors. It'd be great if you find folks at SA would go buy a bunch of those uh, orange and blue shirts and wear them to football games. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be super, super. But that's it for today. 
until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we make more friends than enemies and everybody can see a difference in the way we live. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.